zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Excalibur, released April 10th, 1981. It was written by Rospo Pallenberg and John Borman, adapted by Pallenberg from a book by Sir Thomas Mallory, directed by John Borman, and released by Warner Brothers. Michael Pitt was born today. Who's that? He was on uh, that show, Boardwalk <laughs> Empire, and, oh, okay. mm-hmm. and he was in uh, The Dreamers. I haven't watched any of that. Happy birthday. In the middle of the 15th century, author Sir Thomas Mallory compiled the disparate tales of Arthur and his knights into one compendium called La Morte d'Arthur, which of course translated to The Death of Arthur, adapted from the original title, The Whole Book of King Arthur and His Noble Knights of the Round Table. But in Old English, the spelling of whole is H-O-O-L-E, which made it fun to say. The whole book (laughs) of King Arthur. But, like, it wasn't just a book. I'm just saying, like, there was, there was, the tales are are from all over the place. Like, there isn't a single, there isn't a single story of King Arthur. Right. Just like there's not a single marvel story but the mcu is like a compendium of all the mm-hmm. marvel stories into one coherent message okay sure <laughs> the whole book of king arthur was first published in 1485 it's believed that he wrote them in prison as a political prisoner during the war of roses arthurian legend would go on to serve as the inspiration to many films in the 20th century including disney's sword in the stone in 1963 camelot in 67 Monty Python and the Holy Grail in 75, First Night in 95, the 2004 King Arthur with Clive Owen, that's the Roman one, mm-hmm. Shrek the Third in 2007, the Guy Ritchie one in 2017 that was intended as the introduction to an Arthurian cinematic universe, which is why it doesn't feature Merlin or yeah. uh, Morgana or any of the other like famous characters. Uh, oddly enough, I was going to say, this movie has more of a Disney connection than than those yeah (laughs) well we'll get into that when we get to the end of my theories um and then in july of this year we're going to get david lowry's the green knight starring dev patel as gawain there's also partial inspirations like the original little miss marker where she named all the characters after Mm -hmm. the uh the knights of the round you have the fisher king obviously army of darkness knight riders which we'll be covering very soon indiana jones and the last crusade transformers the last knight but most importantly, a two-part MacGyver episode wherein we learn MacGyver's name. Yeah. Completely awful working titles included Knights, The Knight, Merlin, Merlin and His Wonderful Sword, Merlin and the Knights of King Arthur, and the Knights of King Arthur. Merlin and His Wonderful Sword <laughs> was ever an option? Sounds like a child's like animated movie. Yeah, or like. a, a medieval porn. <laughs> Merlin and his wonderful sword or how I stopped worrying and learned to love Excalibur. <laughs> yeah. Director John Borman was fascinated with Arthurian legend from childhood. 
In the early 70s, he outlined an adaptation for United Artists, who turned the project down. Borman then turned his sights on an epic live-action adaptation of J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings books, but he was beaten to the punch by Ralph Bakshi's animated version, and pivoted back to Arthur. I would have liked to have seen a Lord of the Rings in this style. Well, this is the closest thing you'll get, because some of the locations even were places that he had scouted out for use in his Lord of the Rings movie, but he never got the rights to it. and. Mm-hmm. They weren't available by the time he decided on it. In 74, Borman wrote a new draft and was able to attach Zardoz star Sean Connery as Arthur or Merlin, reports Barry, alongside Lee Marvin as an unknown character and Max von Sydow as Merlin. Hoping to release this in 1976, which also sadly didn't happen, Klaus Kinski was also considered for the Merlin role, but Borman's first choice for the wizard was bizarrely Donald Sutherland, who was mm. busy shooting ordinary people at the time of production. I don't like that one. I'm all yeah. for adding Sean Connery to this. Um, well, know. Sutherland played eccentric weirdo types in yeah. the 70s, and I think he wanted yeah. to play into that a little bit. I, yeah. I'm even for Kinsky, but I don't. Uh, Sutherland just doesn't work for me. Yeah. Obviously, Connery would later play the role of Arthur in 1995's First Night. In 77, Borman and screenwriter Rospo Pallenberg co-wrote a draft called Merlin, for Warner Brothers that also never happened, though Warner Brothers would go on to distribute the film. The script had evolved into Merlin and the Knights of King Arthur by the time it landed at Orion Pictures in 1979. Despite the original legend taking place in the 5th century, Borman moved the events to the Middle Ages. The original plan was, as happens with other characters, for Arthur to be played at different ages by different actors, but in the finished film, 35-year-old Nigel Terry plays the role from teenage years through adulthood. Yeah. And uh, surprisingly well, I think, actually. Are you you disagree? Um, <laughs> uh, oddly enough, I mean, as much as I adore this movie, a lot of my criticisms come from the performances, but I also have theories about that. Yeah. So uh, we'll get into that, too, when we get into the story. I guess I, not so much his performance of young to old. I, I, I think the fact that but he... But the visual. Yeah, visually, he looks really young, and mm-hmm. then he doesn't by the end. Yeah. I, I, you yeah. know, I mean, there is some of that looking just a little gray in the hair kind of thing, but... I, I think they ate, they they aged him down and up pretty well. Yeah. Borman cast Helen Mirren and Nicole Williamson intentionally when he learned that the two hated each other after a contentious production of Macbeth, but they actually became good friends on set. Pierce Brosnan has mentioned auditioning for Siren Hines' King Lot role, but obviously was not cast. We saw him last year in The Mirror Cracked. Michael Beck from Xanadu had auditioned for Sir Lancelot. They got someone pretty similar anyway. I know, they're very similar looking actors, actually, but I, I feel like Michael Beck feels too much like a surfer dude for mm. for the part. Orion intended for this as a summer of 1980 release, but when the start date was pushed back to accommodate the seasonal shooting schedule, it rolled to the 81 slate. The cast and crew trained for six months with fight choreographer William Hobbs, and during that time, Terry English, the crew armorer, built full suits of plate mail fitted to each actor. It's crazy. I mean, they're they're aluminum, but yeah. they are metal, mm-hmm. yeah. and they are full plate mail suits. Yeah, but there's so many extras, too. Like, I don't, yeah. they all they all look metal, too. Yep. It's mm-hmm. just amazing None of them are fake, the whole yeah. thing. Yeah. And, and it feels really real when they're clanging around in these suits. Like, yeah, that's probably how it would have been, yeah. although yeah. much heavier. Director Neil Jordan was on set throughout production filming a behind-the-scenes documentary, but I could not find it anywhere. Yeah, I'm really curious to see what Neil Jordan would have put together on that one. It was called Nights Still when production began at the 
National Film Studios of Ireland in March of 1980. I was going to say, is it Knights with an exclamation point? Because that's how I want it to be. (laughs) That would be the the musical version of it. (laughs) The original cut was over three hours long. The only known deleted scene involved Lancelot rescuing Guinevere from a forest bandit, which apparently appears briefly in the trailer. The title Merlin was shot down by legal because CBS had a show called Mr. Merlin and exclusive rights to the name. The second choice, Knights, was dropped as Ridley Scott had registered the name for a medieval epic he was planning as a follow-up to Alien. Upon its release, Excalibur, as it was finally known, reclaimed its $11.5 million budget in the first 10 days in theaters and finished with a take of around $34 million. I'm impressed that they pulled all of this off for $11 million. I think it looks pretty cheap in some places. I I do think that the money was well spent and they got an incredible adventure film out of it. Mm -hmm. But there's so much of it that looks cheap that they could have, you know, spruced it up a little bit. Yeah, I don't know. I think that the the big locations and the massive crowds and everybody being costumed, like, it just doesn't feel like an $11 million film to me. Yeah, no, that's true. A remake was announced in 2009 with Brian Singer attached to produce and possibly direct, but nothing has come of that, and Singer is no longer the name he was in 2009 and probably couldn't produce something like that anymore. We open with a prologue. The Dark Ages, the land was divided without a king. Out of those lost centuries rose a legend of the sorcerer Merlin, of the coming of a king, of the sword of power, Excalibur. And the title comes up in this really awesome mirrored. I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure it's a model that they're shooting. It's yeah. like twinkling as it tips back and forth in the light. It, it reminded me a lot of the uh, opening credits for Supergirl. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Which would come obviously years later. But the opening credits for Supergirl are crazy with these fully cut. Every name is fully cut out of shiny metal. That's awesome. And I was like, God, that must have taken forever. It's worth it though. Mm-hmm. A crowd of men on horseback in bizarre plate mail crest a hill in the woods carrying large fabric banners. Some of the helmets have beak-like shapes on them. Merlin, played by Nicol Williamson, leads them on foot with a large staff topped with a pair of silver snakes. On his head, he is adorned with a metallic plate that comes to a point like a widow's peak on his forehead. The men race down the hill with torches to clash with another army as the forest is set ablaze. Merlin calls out to Uther Pendragon, Uther was promised a sword, and Merlin says he will have it, but it's not just a tool for killing. Merlin invites Uther to meet him at the river tomorrow. The following morning, Merlin bears witness as a shimmering sequined arm stabs an enormous glowing green sword up from the center of the water, the titular Excalibur. And I suddenly had a vivid flashback to the teaser trailer for Leatherface, Mm -hmm. aka Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, wherein Leatherface watches from the banks of a river under a sound-alike score, and another shiny arm tosses an ethereal silver chainsaw from the water, and Leatherface catches it over his head in a flash of lightning. (laughs) (laughs) I was hoping that would happen here, but we just sort of cut to later, and Mm -hmm. he has the sword now, so I don't know how he got it. Like, did he just stumble out into the lake? Um, There's a lot of strange (laughs) editing choices and and stuff with the music where they don't know how to cut it into the music, so they just fade it out. Yeah. Like, it's like this big bombastious a lot of classical music was repurposed and they you can just, you can tell they must have just had recordings of it and then they just right. like, just fade it out because they because <laughs> they repurpose a lot of wagner mm-hmm. yeah. and then uh, o fortuna plays a lot mm-hmm. yeah well and i could just imagine that it, it, it's something that comes up a lot in this film like they 
they don't cut in a way or sh- even shoot in a way where like they do now to make everybody look really cool in everything yeah. that they do. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, a lot of the fighting choreography looks really clunky because it really is guys just doing what they probably would do if they were yeah. wearing armor, which is pretty clunky. Uh, and so I'm just imagining him going out into this water with all this heavy armor on to try to like swim out, like dog paddle out to this lady. <laughs> to yeah, and also he can like, <laughs> he can see her when he gets to the mill. He's like, excuse me, sorry, oh, sorry. I didn't really not heavy armor, you know. <laughs> it s- swims back over with the sword. <laughs> There's no elegant way to do that. <laughs> no. But he brandishes the weapon in front of a crowd of frightened men because they know the legacy of this sword and they're all terrified that he has it now. They cower at the sight of it as Merlin speaks its origin. Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur! Forged when the world was young and bird and beast and flower were one with man and death was but a dream. He urges Uther to propose a truce with these men. Speak the words. One land, one king! That is my peace, Cornwall! The leader of the opposing army asks what he is granted in exchange for accepting Uther as his king, and Uther grants him his way with the lands from here to the sea. Cornwall accepts and invites Uther to a feast to celebrate their treaty. I have a question about Uther getting the sword here. Yeah. So... Did Merlin, like, say, hey, lady in the lake, this is the guy that's going to... So it, She decides. She decides. That's mm-hmm. Well, that's what I thought. I thought she decides who's worthy. But yeah. as we come to find out, he's not worthy. So why does you she... You can be ever, worthy in, in, the, moment. in, a in moment. the moment. Yeah. Okay, because, like, he, yeah, he becomes unworthy with the decisions that he makes. Right. But... It just didn't seem like, you know, like, I feel like the lady in the lake should probably see the future and know this. Well, yeah. Merlin backing him also probably gave some clout to, okay. to, to Uther. Like, Merlin sees something in this guy, uh, you know, maybe he's, maybe he could, maybe he could be the one. Yeah. And maybe at the time he hadn't done anything as stupid as, like, throw away the plans of peace of, of the future for a woman's yeah, love or Yeah, and something. I guess to be fair, Arthur is also not infallible to this. Right. So. But like, you know, Thor couldn't pick up the hammer sometimes. Right. That, yeah, and then that's he fair. earned his okay. worthiness. Fair back. enough. At the dinner, Cornwall and Uther slash open their wrists and hold the wounds together before they bleed to death. The <laughs> that's not what happened. <laughs> you go across the street. If you go down the street, then you're going to die. Oh. Uh, whoops. Uh, Merlin. Cornwall calls on his wife, Egraine, to entertain the men with a dance. Uther is captivated by her. Cornwall even brags that Uther may be king, but he'll find no better queen in the kingdom, which is a great thing to say if you want the king to come and steal your wife, dummy. <laughs> yeah, it was it was his praises that convinced him, really. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like, if you, if you say, hey, king, look at my great wife. That's like the one thing you can't have that's like so great. <laughs> And then he's like, oh, well, fuck you then. (laughs) Yeah, why can't I, question mark? I must have her. Are you mad? The Alliance! We cut to another castle under siege. Or I guess the same castle. The next day they went outside and then pointed weapons at it and started throwing (laughs) rocks at it. You should have just done that while we were inside. Yeah, we could have done so much more damage if we started this at dinner last night. (laughs) It's hard to get the catapult into the dining hall, though. (laughs) That's true. 
Cornwall looks down from the castle walls on Uther and his men launching their attack. It seems that they've already broken this alliance in the service of getting Uther laid. Uther stalks the battlefield in search of Merlin's council. Merlin is pissed. Yeah. Because this is like decades of work. Yeah. Finding a guy who can take the sword from the lake and then form this truce. And so they make a deal. Merlin promises Uther a knight with Egraine. And in exchange, What issues from your lust shall be mine essentially claiming ownership of their child together but what if they hadn't conceived a child would he mm. just want the semen <laughs> well I, I love like merlin is like pissed about this whole thing and uther tries to justify it as well you don't understand you're not a man yeah which again is is hammering home this this thought that merlin is not of this existence right why is he so invested in finding a rule of government for the people um, I think because he knows that his time is coming to an end and he wants to kind of leave things in a good place. Yeah, he doesn't want FOMO if there's wars after he leaves. <laughs> okay. <laughs> While this agreement is made, and in every scene so far, we can see a bright green light with bits of orange in it reflected in the metal of the polished Excalibur sword. Mm -hmm. From this angle, I thought that it was actually supposed to be green with orange eyes. Like it's the reflection of this dragon that we keep talking mm. about that we don't see. But I can't tell if that's intentional, the, the orange spots on it. And they did mention um, in the documentary that they wanted everything to, to be ethereal. And since they didn't do any sort of post effects on this, they they lit everything to, to have a, yeah. an eerie yeah. look. Just giant bright green lights on everything. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, that's why I can't wait to talk about that sunset. Yeah. That's amazing optical effect. <laughs> The sword casts a green glow on everyone around it, and the deal is made. Uther's army retreats into the woods, and Cornwall makes plans to find them and finish them off while they sleep. Merlin steps into the center of a Stonehenge-esque circle of stones and speaks in a foreign tongue. Apparently, they just found these rocks in this formation on location. Oh, yeah? And uh, when Borman started to walk up to it to check it out, like, oh, I wonder if we could film here, someone else came out that was a local and was like, uh, excuse me, what are you doing? And they had to explain that they were mm. there with the film crew. And I think he's speaking Welsh here. Yeah. yeah. Whatever he's speaking. I mean, I have no idea what he's saying. The, but... the, the charm of making? Yeah. Is, yeah. As he speaks, we see Uther fall into a deep sleep and then awaken with a shout in the pitch black of night. Ah! <sighs> I dreamt of the dragon. I have awoken him. Can't you see all around you the dragon's breath? A thick fog has rolled in to surround the cast, and we see Cornwall and his men disappear into the clouds in search of Uther's men. Merlin sends Uther back to the castle, but masks his appearance with the semblance of the Duke so that Egraine will welcome him as her husband. Uther is able to ride his horse across the thick fog to the castle and transforms mid-stride to resemble Duke Cornwall. He is welcomed at the castle gates. Do you remember the last time that someone with magical powers disguised a man as he was entering a castle? No. Six episodes back. Our 200th episode. Oh. Mm. That wasn't much of a castle. It was a castle. Yeah. And, and they was, disguised it was some ruins. What, the, what the monk looked like on his I way guess. in. They made right. him look like somebody else, but someone less welcome yeah. than he was. And that, that wasn't magic. I don't know. And that man played Merlin. That's right. In the TV <laughs> miniseries. Uh, we're talking about Omen 3 and Sam Neill specifically. 
Meanwhile, in the woods, the Duke and his men are laying waste to Uther's men when Cornwall's horse rears up and tosses him onto a razor-sharp rack of spears that pierce through his armor and body straight through. He's just bleeding all over the place. In the castle, Cornwall's daughter Morgana awakens. My father's dead. Egrain convinces her that it was only a nightmare. Uther enters the chambers and we can see through the front of his plate mail helmet that it's Uther, but when he removes the helmet, we get a flash of Cornwall impaled and bleeding, and suddenly Uther has Cornwall's face. Look, here's your father. It was just a dream, little one. Cornwall beckons Egrain and kisses her hard on the mouth before tearing her clothes off. Morgana can see through Merlin's spell to Uther's true face, and we cut to Uther raping Egrain in front of an enormous fireplace while her husband dies in the woods. I suppose it should be noted here that Egrain is played by our director's daughter. Right. Yeah. Also, and I couldn't confirm this anywhere, but the young girl playing young Morgana here is named Barbara Byrne. Mm. So she might be watching her dad. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if it's... uh, if she's his daughter or, or a mm-hmm. niece or a family member or if they're not even related at all. But it's Byrne spelled the same way as Gabriel Byrne's Right, name. right, right. So potentially we're watching a dad direct his daughter mm-hmm. as she is raped by an actor while his daughter watches. Healthy relationships. Yeah, this guy is going to turn out great in therapy. In the Circle of Stones, Merlin confirms the conception of his prize. The future has taken root in the present. It is done. For the beginning of this shot, the entire crew is just blatantly visible in Merlin's shiny head plate. Mm-hmm. A group of soldiers carry Cornwall's impaled corpse into the castle, right in front of Egrain and Morgana, by the way. The, no qualms about it. No, like, oh, sorry, we should have come a different way. They inform Egrain that uh, he passed, and she says that's impossible because they were here together in her chambers just a moment ago. Morgana closes her father's eyes. Nine months later, Uther enters the castle the new rightful king of all Cornwall's lands. He trudges up to Egrain's room and ejects Morgana from the room to speak with Egrain, who holds their newborn child, a baby boy, in her arms. Uther basically announces that he is the father of this baby and he intends to do right by them. Just then, Merlin enters, accompanied by ravens, and reminds Uther of his oath. The child is rightfully Merlin's. Merlin tells Uther that he's not cut out for fatherhood, and Uther is offended that Merlin thinks all he's good for is killing and ruling. Perhaps not even that. Merlin reminds him that he violated an alliance by waging war on these lands, and he has to face the consequences of his betrayal. His subjects don't trust him. Uther snatches the child from its mother and shoves it at Merlin to take away. Egrain is obviously devastated, but even in these tight shots, the ADR of her screaming doesn't come close to matching her lips at all, and it's Mm -hmm. very distracting. She can be heard screaming throughout the castle for the remainder of Merlin's exit. And I love how this castle is just literally built into the rock. Right. Like the hallway that he's walking through is like half actual stone walls, but then actual just rock face. Yeah. On his way out, Morgana asks if he will serve as both parents to the child, but Merlin doesn't respond. Eventually, Uther ventures into the woods to get his child back, probably after some prodding from Egrain, and is ambushed by a man in chainmail who tears him from his horse and stabs him face down in a puddle of mud. The King's Royal Guard arrive and do battle with the attacker as Uther slowly rises to collect Excalibur from the sheath on his horse. Uther cleanly slices off the arm of one of multiple enemies now and then crawls away from the battle to recover, but the first ambusher follows Uther away with an ally in tow. Uther calls to Merlin for his dragon's breath to aid in his escape. 
With his last ounce of strength, he plunges Excalibur into a large stone, announcing that none but him shall wield the sword. The men on Uther's trail try and fail to remove the weapon. Merlin sees this happen and turns to the child with an understanding of his destiny. Arthur, you're the one. Years later, the sword still glows, and some use the stone as a place of worship, while others ride past it without a second glance, long since having given up on trying to remove it themselves. A pack of armored horsemen trot recklessly through a village. Sir Ector lectures his sons, Kay and Arthur, as they enter town for a competition. It seems as though Kay is representing the family in this contest, and Arthur is just here as his squire. Mm -hmm. The event has been scheduled close enough to the sword and the stone that everyone's armor is still reflecting the green highlights of its glow here. Well, and I think that... Um part of this is that you win a chance to pull like yeah. you, if you if you win the event you get a chance to pull it out of the right. stone yeah N not anyone can just come by and try to give it I a mean, yank i'm pretty sure anybody could yeah somebody does later this day <laughs> uh but I, I feel like the point of it is that they they have like a religious person on site to say mm -hmm. prayers as you pull on it and they want to make an event out of it well and in th and, and i think to their like their theory would be that if you are so worthy as to win a great, you know, like jousting event like this, you are probably worthy to pull it from the stone. Right. Yeah. They're trying England. to weed people out. Yeah. Yeah. When Leon de Grants, played by Patrick Stewart, wins the first round of jousting, he rides up to the sword and gives it his all, but the sword doesn't budge. The crowd that formed around him turns away disappointed. As everyone gears up for the next round to decide the next sword puller, Hector notices that Arthur is a shit squire and has somehow misplaced his brother's sword. I left it in the tent, father. Well, hurry then and get it. And it turns out they took a horse here for no reason because yeah. it's like 10 feet away. I mean, I guess you need one for the contest, but they don't all three need the horse. Uh, but when he reaches the tent, he finds that the sword is already stolen and he tries to pay it backward by stealing a sword from the village blacksmith, but he's caught before he can even take one. So he follows the glow to Excalibur. The man waiting to bless the stone for the next joust winner has fallen asleep, and Arthur quickly withdraws the sword without anyone to bear witness. Kay marches up, finding him holding it, and Arthur hands over Excalibur. Word spreads quickly what's happened, and for a half second, Kay takes credit, but immediately admits, no, it wasn't me, it, wasn't me. it was Arthur. Arthur did it. Arthur apologizes for causing such a fuss, and everyone <laughs> seems so convinced that Arthur isn't destined to rule that they demand he put it back in the rock. <laughs> <laughs> I like the sound even of him just slipping it back into the mm -hmm. rock. Like, yeah. okay, no, sorry guys. But but I also like the idea that they're like, well, you couldn't possibly have pulled it out, so put it back. But if you can put it in a rock, you yeah. probably were the one to pull it from. The right. Rock. Well, I mean, the, in in counter argument, there's probably a hole left where you could put it back in. I feel like there's not. It's oh, magic. That's true. Well, I think the stone is as magic as the sword is, really. Because if you can chip away at the stone, then eventually you can walk away with Excalibur, right? Fair enough. Yeah. Because eventually it's just going to be just... like a stone skin around the sword yeah. that won't let go of it. Yeah. <laughs> which which does plus two bludgeoning damage. Yeah. It's not it's not as sharp as it used to be. There is an actual sword in a stone uh, in Italy. There's one at Disneyland, too. <laughs> more of an anvil i guess yeah. yeah but this one is actually from like the 1200s there was right. a there was a saint in italy that it's in uh, a church right yeah yeah it is um and there's there's apparently bones of arms like around it too 
Like someone died trying to pull it out? No, they cut their arms off because they tried to pull it out. It's like, you're not allowed to do that. (laughs) I'm guessing those were bought at a Halloween store. I I, I was thinking that more so that they they tried to pull so hard that their arms just ripped off and were still (laughs) clinging to the stars. That's my first image. Holy shit. Nobody else try that. He's the king of not having any arms. <laughs> Dummy. Why are you hitting yourself? Why are you hitting yourself? <laughs> Just leave him on the sword. <laughs> he returns the sword before a large crowd forms, but he's invited to take it again. Before Arthur gets to it, a man named Uriens demands a turn, but tries he might, it's no use. Everyone shouts at him to let the boy try again, and Arthur effortlessly draws the sword and is immediately proclaimed king. Yeah, he even does it one-handed yeah. to like to like to be extra. Yeah. So has there not been a king this whole time? Yeah, I don't think so. I so mean, the, the I kingdom think, remained intact, but there well, was no king? Well, even before Uther, it was just, you know, I'm sure just disparate feudal lords all over the land. And, yeah. and that went back to that way. It's just whoever was strong and claimed the land would, would be the ruler of that area. So I guess. Th- and that's the problem. That's what, that's what Merlin wants to unite under one rule of government. Right. Hector chooses this moment to admit to Arthur that he's adopted, and just as he does... We see a figure approaching out of focus in the background with a reflective headpiece and a large staff. When Merlin reaches them, Arthur demands to know who his father is, and he tells him the truth. The crowd are not fans of Merlin's, yeah. and led by Urians, make plans to kill Arthur and avoid having a bastard king until Leon de Grance turns them around again. I saw what I saw! The boy drew the sword. If a boy has been chosen... A boy shall be king! No! The other prospective kings in the crowd swear vengeance on Leon de Grants, but he sticks to his principles. Arthur follows Merlin off into the distance with the sword. When he catches up with Merlin, he explains that the fate of the kingdom will mirror Arthur's fate. They will fail together or thrive together. That night, Arthur is still in the woods with a now sleeping Merlin, and they pre-enact a scene from Temple of Doom mm-hmm. where Arthur is the Kate Capshaw role and she's spooked by animal noises and grabs a snake slithering out of a tree without realizing it before freaking out. <laughs> I was getting uh, earth, the Earthling vibes here. Oh, sure, oh, yeah. yeah. There was just like, the, as the camera's panning by, there is an animal in every square inch of yeah. this woods. Merlin offers to tell Arthur exactly what's lurking in the wilderness if he'll shut up and go to sleep. <laughs> Shall I tell you what's out there? Yes, please. The dragon. A beast of such power that if you were to see it whole and all complete in a single glance, it would burn you to cinders. Where is it? It is everywhere. Aren't I seeing everything? Yeah. I don't get it. <laughs> well, the world is the dragon. Yeah. Arthur asks what he can do to survive it, and Merlin tells him, go to sleep. I like this prank, though. If I tell you what's out there, will you go to sleep? Yes. It's the most terrifying thing imaginable. <laughs> Good night. <laughs> The next morning, Arthur is swinging Excalibur around like he's some sort of two-headed transplant. He asks Merlin about his father and learns of his dad's failures in ruling the kingdom. Arthur asks how to avoid his father's pitfalls, and Merlin says that he must know what to do because he drew the sword. Merlin points Arthur to their last interaction with other people, and Arthur concludes on his own that only Leondegrance was on his side, so they must join forces with him. I love that conversation. It's like you pulled the sword from the stone. That was easy. Really? I couldn't have done it. Yeah. <laughs> like th- this. This gets into my theory of why, uh, of how people are performing. So I, I feel like everyone who's not Merlin 
is acting very strangely. Yes. Their their performances are very stiff and kind of otherworldly, where Merlin seems to have the more modern cadence of speaking. Yeah, he's timeless. Yeah, and, and I feel like that's purposeful. Yeah. Or at least I want it to be purposeful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because because Nicole Williamson is is such a fun character as Merlin that he steals the show whenever he's there. Right. Um, but he doesn't talk like everyone else talks. Merlin confirms that Leon de Grants is in need of their assistance as he is under attack from the other great knights already. Merlin leads Arthur to a group of loyal men in the woods and they provide him a horse and he leads them to Leon de Grants. Merlin and Arthur tear down the scaffolding that the opposing forces are using to breach Leon de Grants' castle walls. Inside, Leon de Grants' daughter, Guinevere, screams for her father as she is cornered by an enemy soldier. Sherry Lungy playing Patrick Stewart's daughter here is only 12 years younger than him. He's always looked older than he is. Though. It's the yeah. balding, yeah. 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 Again, and this is this is what eight, six, uh, sorry, seven or eight years before Next Generation, right? Yeah. So I mean, and and he looks, he looks like he's older here than he does in Generation. Yeah, maybe well, a little yeah, bit. Yeah, because he um because he shaved it all. Yeah, because he, mm. he started shaving his head, and like when he had the 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 ring of hair, it made him look older. But yeah. He, I mean, he was balding since he was like twenty. Yeah. The two armies clash on horseback in the moat around Leon de Grant's castle. Guinevere notices Arthur climbing the castle walls and tearing down enemy soldiers along the way and points him out to her father. Arthur notices Urien's below the wall in the river and jumps from the top of the wall to tackle him off of his horse into the moat. He demands Urien swear an oath to him here and now and call off his men because they could use men like his on Arthur's side. Urien refuses to swear allegiance to someone who isn't a knight, let alone the rightful king, and everyone turns to watch this interaction as Arthur offers Urien's the Excalibur to knight him with. He's like, you're right, I'm not a knight. Make me a knight. That's going to be your job. First order of business. Urien's raises the sword high in the air with anger in his eyes, but he brings it down lightly on Arthur's shoulder to knight him. In the name of God, St. Michael and St. George, I give you the right to bear arms and the power to meet justice. That duty I will solemnly obey as knight and king. I never saw this. Rise, King Arthur. <laughs> I do like that Merlin's been getting the early edition, mm-hmm. and he's <laughs> like, wait, hold on a second. <laughs> there was never any article about this uh, Arthur handing over Excalibur to somebody else just to test them, or... Mm-hmm. Uh, but Urien's doesn't want to look like a chicken shit in front of everybody, and so he yeah. has to go along with it. I also think there's maybe a little bit of magic at work here, though. Yeah. yeah. He I, seems hypnotized slightly by the sword. Well, I, I think that it's cult drawing forth this sense of righteousness. Right. And like, it's like, here, here's this kid who I could easily just kill right now, but he's showing immense bravery and, you know, and he's holding the sword. I mean, And, and the sword is forcing him to recognize these mm-hmm. things. After the battle, we see Guinevere stitching Arthur's wounds by a river. That night, at a dinner devoted to Arthur, he dances with Guinevere until he tears some stitches and takes a seat by Merlin. He asks if the wizard will please roofie Guinevere for him, (laughs) even though she already seems more than interested, and Merlin is vehemently against serving as hapless wingman to a second generation of Pendragons. Arthur changes his request to a simple fortune-telling, and Merlin admits Arthur will marry Guinevere, and then half under his breath mentions that a good friend will betray him. Yeah. But Arthur stopped listening after her name. We flash forward a chunk of time, Arthur's facial hair has changed, and he's watching one of his men return from battle injured. It seems one knight, on a white horse, 
in gleaming silver armor is handing Arthur's men their asses one at a time and denying them passage across a bridge. It's very Holy Grail-ish, like this yeah. moment. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, that's where this is where that and... Right. But this, this felt the most like parody to me, mm-hmm. especially the follow-up scene here where Arthur decides to take him alone but asks Merlin for some information. Yeah. And instead of helping, Merlin tries to catch a fish out of a stream and then just falls backwards into the stream like <laughs> yeah. a clown. Arthur faces off with Lancelot, who claims to be cursed with victory, unable to lose and unwilling to stand aside. He introduces himself as Lancelot, and I wish Arthur had been like, why do they call you that? (laughs) (laughs) Lancelot invites Arthur to his side of the bridge for a joust. Arthur rushes over to the lance pile, and I wish he just went right past it and abandoned the whole army. (laughs) He's just like, ha ha, you let one through. (laughs) But instead he squares off for the contest. Arthur strikes a solid blow on the first pass and they reset. Arthur is dehorsed in round two and draws his sword to fight man to man on the ground. Turns out Lancey is better here too and urges Arthur to give up, insisting that he doesn't want to hurt him. He's just trying to stop them. I have to say I absolutely hate all of the fight and battle camera work in this movie so far because every shot is super close up on the fighter so that I never have a good feel of the power behind each blow or Mm -hmm. the scale of the battle that's taking place. And but it's also sometimes the reverse when it's too far away. Yeah, and everyone and, and it just looks, looks very small. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But the editing is also very random, and I think maybe that's on purpose to just hide bad choreography. Because I know from the documentary that we were able to find that Borman would let the camera run beyond what they had choreographed because mm. he liked the improvised fighting, <laughs> and, and I don't like yeah. improvised <laughs> fighting. Yeah, it's also dangerous. Yeah. Because these are real weapons for the most part. Yeah, and they're wearing real armor, and like it's, but it's not, you know, you could still hit, you could still hurt somebody very badly. Yeah. Yeah. Lancey knocks Arthur down into a river amongst large rocks, and they spar here for a while. Arthur waits till now to call in the power of his magical sword. He swings it, he breaks Lancelot's weapon, but cracks it in half on Lancelot's armor, and Lancey collapses unconscious. Merlin is astonished. Merlin! What have I done? You have broken. What could not be broken? Arthur blames his pride and tosses what's left of the sword in the river. He realizes that this knight fought fair and he fought with hatred. Arthur believes that all is lost when suddenly Merlin notices the Lady of the Lake rising again with a spare Excalibur. Extra life. Yeah. (laughs) Lucky for Arthur, this one was still under warranty. We're a two Excalibur family now. Um, so, th- so I was trying to look up like the original legend stuff just to just to see how how well this fit to it. And one of the things that um, was was different is that Excalibur is only comes from the Lady in the Lake in the original. Doesn't legend. come from a stone. It ever. doesn't come from a stone. So the sword that is in the stone is not Excalibur. Well, I mean, it got stuck in the stone by someone who took it from the Lady of the Lake in this film, right? But not in the legend. How do you know no one ever stuck it in a rock? Maybe maybe the <laughs> guy writing down everything Excalibur ever I'm did just looked away for a second. that in the legend, the sword and the stone and Excalibur from the Lady in the Lake were two separate swords. Okay. That's fair. Lancelot awakens and praises the only man to ever defeat him in combat. He pledges his allegiance to the king. We cut to the tail end of a massive war on a flaming hillside. Each of Arthur's knights arrives to announce that they have won their battles and the kingdom is back in one piece united under his leadership. Merlin ignites his staff to make a speech. He tells the men to savor this victory for the rest of their lives. Arthur looks at the men standing in a circle around him and promises to build a round table to remind them of this night. 
Although I thought historically that the point of the round table was that it didn't have a head because mm-hmm. no is. one was more it, important than anyone it's else. It's supposed to be, yeah, dem- democratizing that they're all equal. Yeah. Or that we stood in a circle that one time, remember? That was cool. Let's be in circles a lot. Sometime later, Arthur's beard has evolved again. Sir Lancelot arrives at Arthur's castle, Camelot. The set was built on the sound stages of National Film Studios, but walls had to be cut out of the building to fit the entire set. Leon de Grants greets him and introduces him to Guinevere. Lancelot is to escort her to Arthur in the woods. On the way through the woods, a carriage of girls can't stop giggling and staring at Lancelot. Guinevere asks, on their behalf of course, if he's in a relationship, and he says that he's only a servant to the king. Surely, there must be some lady somewhere in the world who inspires you. There is one. Who is she? Oh, go on, tell me. You? Oh, you're teasing me. I will love you always. I will love you as my queen and as the wife of my best friend. And while you live, I will love no other. Guinevere is speechless at the revelation. While Lancelot makes this sound honorable, it's clearly heavy-duty flirting, and Arthur would for sure be pissed to hear him talk to his fiancée like that. He basically said, you're the love of my life, and if Arthur wasn't around, there'd be no question. <laughs> Once he tells this to Guinevere, Guinevere kind of like pulls back and rides backwards, and Lancelot's keep looking forward, and I feel like he's thinking, ooh, I may have overplayed that. <laughs> yeah, seriously. But she's like shaken by it. She's like, oh my god, like, this. I would much rather be marrying this guy right now. In the woods, Arthur and Guinevere are married. Morgana corners Merlin at the outskirts of the ceremony to introduce herself. She remembers him from when he stole Arthur as a baby. She tells him that she is a sorceress in training, and he gives a wizard quiz, or a whiz quiz, (laughs) as they're known in some circles. He asks if she has any psychic powers, and she tells him of Arthur's future castle, but Merlin says, ah, everybody knows about that. That's not a trick. She offers to ease his loneliness by joining him as a full-time student. In the heart of the woods, Lancelot crosses paths with a would-be assassin, but notices him and rides off. Hours later, Lancelot is resting at the foot of a tree when the man returns, dagger in hand, but Lancey is ready. He pokes a sword in the boy's face and tells him to run home. The boy builds a fire and catches and cooks a rabbit as a half-assed apology for attempted murder. He watches from a high tree as Lancelot finds the feast left for him. I assumed it was just like, this is a bad trap and you're just watching me approach it. Like, Mm -hmm. this is either poisoned rabbit or it's going to snap shut on me somehow. But no, it's just a gift. I don't think he was ever trying to murder Lancelot. He was it, trying to thieve him. Yeah, or like it felt more like he was counting coup or something. Like just like I want to prove that I'm as good as the best knight in the land. Maybe. The boy begs to serve the knight as squire, and Lancelot leads the boy twenty days to Camelot. <laughs> Dropping off the boy, Kay invites Lancelot in for a meeting at the round table, but he refuses after seeing Guinevere inside. The boy from the woods explores the castle a while, surprising Merlin and causing him to bump his head on some kind of machinery. Merlin tells him to follow his nose to the kitchen where he is to start work, and he moves through a sort of medieval laboratory. Well, I was say, like, I like that Merlin is kind of like supervising like this mini industrial revolution. Right, yeah. Where, where he's like, there's like a printing press. There's a printing press. Where, like, that's the machine he's yeah. building right there. And he's like, he's like trying to like impart this information to these people. Because he knows about it because he's existed for all of time, Mm -hmm. forward and backward. The boy eventually finds a balcony over the round table as all the knights take their seats. That night, the boy, who we will learn is Percival, is working in the kitchen and serving Queen Guinevere. 
Morgana has seen the way that Guinevere and Lancelot look at each other, as she tells her date, Gawain, played by a young Liam Neeson, to watch them. Morgana follows Merlin around the castle, begging for more lessons, and he's worried that she already knows too much. Arthur calls out to Merlin and suggests that he's such a great king that evil just plain doesn't exist anymore. But Merlin claims, oh, it's there. Always. Where you never expected. Always. Gawain shares with the table evil's current address. He points to Lancelot's empty seat and blames his desire for Guinevere. Gwynny accuses Gawain of falling victim to rumors and offers him Lancelot's cup to drink goodness from. Gawain dumps the cup on the round table, and Arthur has seen enough. He announces a contest. Gawain and Lancelot shall meet in battle, the logic being that good always triumphs over evil, so whoever dies was obviously lying. Gwynny is furious that her husband won't take her word, but Arthur claims that he must be king first and husband second. In the woods, we see Lancelot alone, admitting that he has been disloyal only in his heart, but he would break his vows and give up all honor to be with her. He's so honorable that he will stay away because he is so, you know, in love with her. Yeah. But at the same time, he'd give up everything to be with her. Why not just go back and be at the table? <laughs> because he's trying not to do that. It's like me and a refrigerator where I'm like, I would murder someone to eat all of that ice cream, but I'm going to stay over here and maybe I won't do it because it's all the way over there. In the middle of the night, Lancelot dreams that Arthur has donned his armor to kill him, and he tackles his king to the ground, only to find the plate mail empty. Somehow in the tackle, Lancelot managed to spear himself through the hip on his own sword. He manages to tear the sword free, and we see a very convincing sword removal. Yeah. Probably a collapsing blade. But again, the ADR here is distractingly bad. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of... Th- this film was originally mixed in mono, yeah, well, it, it was mixed in stereo, and then he switched it to mono. Yeah, so I, I feel like, and then going back to stereo, I don't know if yeah, they yeah, went yeah. to the original, and so I feel like there's probably a lot of audio issues that they encountered in some of these locations. And um, I it, would assume that when uh, Merlin is giving his speech on the top of the hill after they won the war, that the sound of his cane is probably yeah. is throwing flame, and so that's all ADR. Um, but yeah, this, this scene with the, with the sword, because you can see the sword coming out the other end, Yeah. yeah. but when he pulls it out, he, you know, he, he cheats, has to hide it. Yeah. yeah. He cheats it away from the camera. So when he pulls out the other sword, but it's still the collapsing blade looks good. Yeah. Like there's a couple of really interesting things that they do that I go, I don't know how they made that look really good. Yeah. Cause this, the sword looks all in one piece when it comes out. Lancelot passes out from the pain. And when he does not appear in the morning for trial by combat, his squire Percival offers to take his place. To accept the boy's offer in the absence of any other volunteer, Arthur must knight Percival here. I feel like it's such a gamble because this kid could be worthless and you're basically putting your wife's honor in the hands of somebody who has no experience. And I think that's why he's mad at no one else for stepping forward because he's looking at the whole group and he's like, really? Nobody? I got to knight this kid we found yesterday? Well, because no one believes that the queen is innocent. Yeah, exactly. That's the (laughs) point. He's mad at everyone for this. Well, I guess perhaps maybe he doesn't believe it himself then either because he's not stepping forward. Yeah. But he can't. He's the king. Sure. Likely story. Just before the battle commences, Lancelot arrives. He takes over defending the queen's honor, and Percival was basically granted a free knighting. Like, oh, cool. I'll just take this home. I'm a knight now. That reminds me that Ready Player One kind of has a 
has some Arthurian stuff in it because the guy's name is Percival, right? That's his. Well, Pars- Parsival. Parsival. But yeah. but yes, that is the that is the thing is that he's looking also in the it's film. It's a Holy Grail thing. Yeah, but also in the film Ready Player One, the password to put that shield around is the charm of making from Excalibur. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, okay, interesting. Gawain and Lancelot joust each other to the floor and then bash away at each other with these plated club things. I don't know what you'd call them. Lancelot is still struggling with his hip wound, from which he is bleeding profusely, but he finishes the fight straddling Gawain, who declares the queen's innocence in exchange for his mercy. Lancelot rears up as if to attack anyway and then collapses. In a bed later, Arthur tells Merlin to resurrect his friend Lancelot because he's a big cuck, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Merlin says some kind of incantation, and Arthur starts peppering him with questions. Merlin confirms that Lancey will recover, and that Arthur will have a son. Gwynny looks after Lancey as he awakens. Well, well, yeah. I mean, so Arthur asks, "Will I ever have a son?" And Merlin just goes, "Yes." It's like, it's like no, no riddles. Just a plain answer, yes. That frightens me. <laughs> yeah, it's like, well, you should have been more specific with your question. Lancey rejoins them at the round table, and Arthur stands to ask a knight's most important attributes. And Merlin suggests truth. Lancey stands to leave, needing time to recover in the woods. Hasn't Merlin mended your wound? It is deep. Gwynny races after him to the woods, and he raises a sword to warn her away, but she pulls it to her chest, and he drops it as they begin to kiss. I, I like the metaphor that the the wound that he has uh, inflicted upon himself right. is a wound that will never heal. Right, yeah. Between silver parapets on the roof of his castle, Arthur asks Merlin if they are together and merlin says yep and he keeps watching them because <laughs> merlin's a creeper he tells arthur that this world is done with him and they say their goodbyes before he leaves merlin visits with morgana and he gives her his goodbyes as well she asks for one last spell before he goes and he leads her to a dungeon while out in the woods lancy and Gwynny fuck on rocks like big mossy rocks yeah and there's like deer and like birds flying around yeah. like this is like the most magical place except for they're on rocks <laughs> <laughs> and apparently uh they the moss was covered in ants and they oh. got bitten up really bad oh my god that's gross <laughs> merlin's dungeon looks like a natural cavern He tells her that this cavern is the birthplace of his powers and the home of past, present, and future. She sees Lance and Gwyn making love and her brother Arthur catching them in the act. Well, what I like is that they're they're in the cavern. uh, Right. Like they're like like walking around inside of the cavern uh, as if they're physically there. But But they're in the same positions as they are in the real world. Correct, yeah. yeah. Morgana demands Merlin's final spell. Show me the dragon. Tell me the sacred charm of making. Even though such knowledge would burn and blind you, then burn me. In the woods, Arthur stands over the sleeping lovers and he readies Excalibur to impale them when Merlin's staff blasts a sudden flame in the cavern. His eyes are bright red as he recites an incantation. Morgana grips her head in both hands and screams as though she's facing down some indescribable Lovecraftian nightmare. Outside, Arthur stabs Excalibur into the earth, missing his friend and wife on purpose. And in the cavern, we see that the sword has run Merlin through. Yeah, oh, it, it's such a, and it's such a, it's a cut, but it's really the sword is moving when we cut yeah, back to Merlin. Yeah, it's really well done. Yeah, 
The spell is interrupted and the cave shakes like it's an earthquake. Merlin collapses and the sword is gone, but Merlin calls out to it and says something about Excalibur stabbing the spine of the dragon. I'm not sure what happens next because Merlin just a moment ago was surrendering to the afterlife, but Morgana creeps around demanding he call the dragon to mend the sword and speak the charm of making. Are these three different requests or is this all one request? Does does the charm of making call the dragon and mend the sword? I think it's I think it's a catch-all. <laughs> okay. And why does any of this matter to Merlin who was waving goodbye to Earth a second ago? Yeah. But he speaks the words and Morgana commits them to memory as he speaks them, freezing him in a block of ice. The next morning, Guinevere and Lancelot awaken completely naked in the woods and find Excalibur stabbed into the earth between them and understand that they've been caught. Lancelot deduces that without the sword, Arthur can't be king and the kingdom is now without a king. Morgana goes to find Arthur and casts a love spell for him to forget Guinevere's indiscretions and then appears as her to have sex with him. She is instantly pregnant and then reveals herself as his half-sister. She retires to her own dark castle, where she lays fully nine months pregnant on a black satin bed surrounded by minions. Do you remember the last time we saw Helen Mirren <laughs> pretending to be pregnant? <laughs> well, I think this is, a, this is a stunt body because the pregnancy looks really good, and I feel so bad for whatever pregnant lady has her head, like cranked back under a sheet while Helen Mirren's got that her is, head poking up through a table. That's exactly <laughs> what they did here. But yeah, it, the, it's similar to what happened in Caligula. Um, only that belly looked so much worse in Caligula. <laughs> but yeah, for this scene, I said they pulled an incredible two-headed transplant move because there's a pregnant woman lying on the on the bed and and she's naked from, you know, you can see like the whole side of her body. Yeah. And so it's very hard to fake a pregnancy that good, especially at the time. But Helen Mirren's head is just sticking out of the table, which is weird. Um, it looks very uncomfortable for both of them. She sits up and she pulls the child from her own loins. Back in Camelot, Arthur's priests are praying for protection from Morgana's unholy child. I'm surprised Arthur even told them about that. Because if he hadn't, the burden of proof would be on Morgana to prove that she has a legitimate son who's heir to the throne. Mm-hmm. Like, he didn't he didn't have to say, guys, I fucked my sister yesterday. <laughs> it's like, why would you tell anyone? As they pray, Arthur is struck by lightning through a church window. Sometime later, one of Arthur's knights is moving through the countryside as the villagers call out to him for assistance, and the lands look completely barren. The knights meet around the table and consult with Arthur about how to solve the problem, and he tells them only the grail can bring fertility back to their lands. They ask where they can expect to find it, and he unhelpfully advises them to look for signs. <laughs> grail, that way. <laughs> I just remembered we left our beacon on, which is grail-shaped. <laughs> oh, perfect. They ride off in an arbitrary direction for the grail, and then split up from there. They come to a field of still-flaming sheep corpses, yeah. Percival continues moving through the rain and snow to a knight sheltered in a small stone structure. He asks the knight if he found the grail, but on closer inspection, the knight has long since died, his skeleton frozen in a kneeling position in the armor. Moving through the woods, Percival sees Gawain on his horse, but he's naked, partially wrapped in a sheet, with his throat slit, and the horse trots through the trees with Gawain's prone corpse just bouncing along behind it. And it's actually Liam Neeson pretending to be dead as he lays back on a horse moving at a good clip. I don't think you'd get away with shooting something like this today. Yeah, because that looked really painful. Your head just bouncing back and forth on the butt of a horse. And super dangerous, too. A woman's laughter can be heard, and we see another person on horseback disappearing into the trees. (laughs) 
Percival follows, and we see that the person laughing is not a woman, but a small child, maybe 10 years old, and a full set of golden plate mail. The gold knight claims to know the location of the grail and offers to lead Percival to it. Percival follows C-3PO to a tree decorated <laughs> in knight corpses. One is being pecked clean by a crow that rips the knight's eyeball out of the socket. Apparently this shot took several days to get, and I'm not surprised. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's neat. Like, they, they seem to have put the fake eyeballs in the skull. Like, they packed it with, like... Meat. Yeah, like loose ground beef. It's a real eyeball. It's a real eyeball? Human eyeball. Well, no, sheep it's, eyeball. it's a sheep eye, yeah. It, I'm surprised it's a sheep eyeball because don't don't they have like weird slits instead of round pupils? Maybe it's a cow eye. No, it said sheep eye. Oh, sheep okay. eye. I thought sheep's had funny pupils. Maybe I'm mistaken. Mm. That's the sheep teachers have maybe funny goats. Pupils. Maybe it's goats <laughs> that I'm thinking of. Maybe the gold knight points to all the hanging bodies. They were looking for it too, but they weren't good enough. Percival chases the Golden Boy into a cave lit with green light. Inside, the Golden Boy, Mordred, removes his helmet and kneels before his mother, Morgana. She tells Percival it's been ten years and a day since they set off on their quest and invites him to drink from a grail in the cave. We get a creepy split diopter shot of the grail in the foreground and Percival reaches for it until he collapses. When he awakens, he's surrounded by other knights of the round, all offering him various cups to drink from. He casts them aside, and Mordred orders the brainwashed knights to hang Percival in the same tree as the others. What I liked about this is he, he's reaching for the grail, and you see him pass out, and he's in, like, Morgana's arms, and right. when all these knights. But but then when he resists, he's still standing up. He's yeah. still standing up and reaching. Like, like, that was all just, like, this vision. He hasn't actually ever collapsed. He's still, like, reaching for it. Yeah, and she's still standing across the room, not mm-hmm. supporting him. Luckily for him, when he's strung up in the tree, it's just below a knight with razor-sharp blades on the heels of his armor that are dragging back and forth across the rope he's suspended from. And just as he about gives up hope, he enters a dream as narrow light cuts across his eyes and we see him standing in front of an opening drawbridge with light pouring out. Inside, he has a vision of the Holy Grail tipping to spill blood and he walks toward it. A disembodied voice asks, What is the secret? Of the Grail, who does it serve? And he turns to retreat, but the drawbridge is nearly closed. He climbs to the top and then falls from the other side, just as the dead knight's blades cut through his rope and he lands under the haunted tree. Back in Morgana's cave, as she bathes her son, Mordred asks when he shall be king, and she says that she will send him to Arthur when the time is right. We flash forward another decade, maybe? To the time being right. (laughs) Yeah, to the time being right. And I thought I took long showers, but Morgana's been bathing this kid for eight, ten years, maybe? Uh, He stands up. He's now a foot taller than her. He dons a larger set of golden armor, and Morgana adorns him with sprinkles. She just throws (laughs) glitter in the air. She sends him to Camelot to face his father. In Camelot, Arthur is now too weak to move on his own, and teams of knights carry his throne from room to room. Mordred arrives to claim the throne. I cannot give you the land. Only my love. That's the only thing of yours I don't want. Mordred informs him that the quest knights have all been dispatched, and now it is Arthur's turn. He says he will come back and take the kingdom by force. We see Percival drinking out of a stream when he suddenly hears the blaring of horns. 
Mordred is leading an attack on Camelot, and Percival watches as they surround Urien's and demand he withdraw his allegiance to the king, but when he refuses, they cut him down. Urien's collapses at the water's edge, and Mordred impales him with a spear. Percival just stands there watching like a coward, and makes no effort to even hide himself. Mm -hmm. Mordred even sees him, and then they just walk away. They don't care that he's there. Percival rushes to Urien's side and apologizes for not helping and for failing in his quest. He tells Urien's that he had the grail within his grasp, and Urien's tells him that he's the last hope and to try again. Percival follows the loud moaning of some local corpse farmers raking away at the rubble of their village. A procession of mourners follow the body of a child through the scene. One of the villagers is an old man with a scraggly gray beard, and he shouts at Percival as the symbol of the royalty that has failed them. Percival recognizes the man as Lancelot, who never returned from the woods after betraying Arthur. Yeah, it's been a rough couple of years for old Lancelot. It keeps cutting back to this woman who's crying, and man, she has just got the most upsetting crying face. Well, they told her that they actually killed her kid for that (laughs) scene. No, I don't know. I mean, she's just like... The, the the grief like yeah. is like is like oh Very my god this whole scene is really crazy the villagers push percival face down in the stream and as the water pushes him downstream he calls out repeatedly for lancelot Arthur needs you lancelot eventually he disappears below the surface and we see him stripping away his armor symbolically shedding his fealty to the king as he struggles for the surface He breaks through into open air and finds himself again at the ethereal drawbridge. This time he moves inside to claim the grail without hesitation. The disembodied voice asks again, What is the secret of the grail? Who does it serve? You, my lord. Who am I? You are my lord and king. You are Arthur. Have you found the secret that I have lost? Yes. You and the land are one. So it seems like the ticket to the Holy Grail is just a near-death experience. Or it is dying. Mm. Oh, is he dying each of these times? I, I mean... But could he have just, like, you know hopped into a closet and threw a belt around his neck <laughs> and then came out with the grail a couple minutes later they didn't even have to leave the castle well i mean he would have potentially have another vision of the grail i guess true. but but then he port keys right to camelot yeah <laughs> he takes the grail in his hands and then he just walks across the room to arthur sitting in his throne and he makes arthur drink from it and the land and arthur are brought back from the brink i, I like that when he's bringing the cup to arthur it's empty and it slowly it, fills it slowly itself. fills it's yeah. like oh it's such great Percival, I didn't know how empty was my soul until it was filled. But isn't in the actual story, it's Galahad that brings back the grail, right? Not Percival. I think that's correct. And Galahad is Lancelot's son. Uh, I know that the character is Lancelot's son, but I think I I feel like the stories go back and forth Mm. a couple different ways. I think in Thomas Mallory's version, it's Galahad. Mm-hmm. But um, they just basically were trying to keep the story as tight as they could and center it on these, like, seven characters. Yeah, I mean, I think that yeah, they combined a couple of characters in, in a couple different places for this. Yeah. Including two different swords. Right. <laughs> <laughs>
Arthur stands and tells his brother Kay to ready the knights. They will ride with their king once more. I've lived through others far too long. Lancelot carried my honor, and Guinevere my guilt. Mordred bore my sins. My knights have fought my causes. Now, my brother, I shall be king. The soundtrack starts into O Fortuna again, which, by the way, this is the first movie to use O Fortuna. Oh, really? In popular culture. That's from this movie in terms of its use as parody for like a dramatic moment in film. Which it gets a lot of play now. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. We see Arthur and the knights charging out of the enormous silver castle of Camelot. As they ride through the lands, they transition from dry, dusty wastelands to verdant fields and trees bearing fruit. Arthur arrives at a monastery where Guinevere has spent all these years. She kneels facing a window in a stone wall cut in the shape of a very tall, narrow cross that evokes the silhouette of a sword. He forgives her for all she's done, and he admits that he still loves her. I've always loved you, and I still love you. I loved you as king, sometimes as husband. He also asks for her forgiveness, a move that, judging from her reaction, she didn't expect. He tells her that he had a duty to his legend, that he's sorry to have served it at the cost of their marriage. Gwynny moves to a humble mattress on the floor and lifts it to reveal that she kept Excalibur for him. Arthur and his men assemble and rest for the night, intending to do battle with Mordred's army tomorrow. Arthur stands in a circle of rocks and calls to his old advisor Merlin. Merlin speaks to him telepathically, powered by Arthur's love for the wizard. Suddenly, Merlin appears before him. Are you just a dream, Merlin? A dream to some? A nightmare to others! <laughs> I, I like when, when Arthur is like calling for Merlin and he pounds his fist on the rock and you just hear that boom and it resonates into the earth merlin vanishes arthur wakes Kay to confirm that they both had the same dream of merlin and that this is now how they will consult with him moving forward merlin is basically a cross between loki and freddy (laughs) krueger now merlin turns his attention to the sleeping morgana in her keep she awakens and reaches for him but he's translucent now and her hands pass through him He lures her into reciting the charm of making to prove to him her magical prowess. She speaks the words in her dream, but outside the dream she's talking in her sleep, and smoke billows from her lips as she calls on the dragon. He warns her the spell can damage her beauty, but she continues the recitation. A fog suddenly surrounds the camp of her soldiers, and one calls it to Mordred's attention. Mordred checks on his mother, whose room is now thick with fog. She hears her son enter and moves about the room, But all this conjuring has drawn power from the spell that keeps her young, and she appears as an elderly woman. Mordred confuses her for an intruder and bashes her to the ground before strangling her to death. I don't know if he confuses her for an intruder. He's just like, oh, gross, mom. (laughs) Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's exactly what he's doing. I don't want to sleep with you. Later, O'Fortuna kicks up again as Arthur's army approaches. What I like is, like, they're in the fog, and... And Mordred goes, where are they? And the, one of the soldiers goes, listen. But you hear O'Fortuna really low, and it starts to build up. Like, that's what they're listening for. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, I love this song. <laughs> the soundtrack is where they are. 
The first of Mordred's soldiers is speared through the chest very suddenly, and then it's all chaos in the fog. It reminded me of some of Game of Thrones Season 7, because I cannot follow the battle very well in the yeah. fog. We have silver good guys and black and gold bad guys, but people are getting impaled and dismembered and tackled to the ground. When things seem dire, out of the fog rages the old scraggly gray-bearded Lancelot, fighting for his king again. Lancelot is wounded in the fight and calls to his king friend. Arthur! Arthur! But by the time Arthur reaches him, he's on the edge of death and begs for forgiveness. My salvation is to die a knight of the round table. You are that, and much more. You are its greatest knight. You are what is best in men. Lancelot tactlessly asks after Guinevere, Hey, are you guys still a thing? Or, yeah, we are. <laughs> yeah. Why don't you go live asking. in an ash can, Lancelot? <laughs> Lancelot dies. <laughs> Percival points out the fading fog and turns to face Mordred, but this fight is for Arthur. If someone's going to murder the son I love, it's going to be me. It's going to be me. Come, father. Let us embrace at last. Arthur gives his son first stab <laughs> as a belated birthday gift and then pulls Mordred's lance deeper and deeper through his chest to approach his son and bury Excalibur in his chest. Man, when when Mordred's spear goes through Arthur and it comes out the other end, this big chunk of meat yeah. like is hanging on the edge of the spear and then Ugh. falls off. It's rough. As like, oh man, it's so great silhouetted too with that sunset. Yeah. This artificial sunset. Uh-huh. Arthur tells Percival to remove the sword from his kid and toss it in a lake, presumably to hide the evidence. <laughs> a bright red sun rises behind them. Well, yeah, I mean, because this is a practical effect uh, done with uh, glass and lighting yeah. to, to make it look like this crazy red sun that's in the distance, but it's it's not, you know? It's, it's the reflection of a light, though, right? It's yeah. not even the sun? Yeah, it's, it's just a reflection of a light, of a light source. Yeah. Um, but, but they do it, mul- they, they, the sun never seems to go any higher or lower right. for like several scenes. Yeah. <laughs> Percival reaches a lake, but returns to Arthur to admit he couldn't do it. And Arthur <laughs> sends him again to the lake. Yeah, I, I, I feel that this was a little bit like, okay, come on. I love that they found 40 minutes to take out and they were like, should we take out the part where he goes to the lake and then comes back and says, are you sure? <laughs> are you like, sure you want to quit? <laughs> <laughs> but Arthur says, yeah, go back to the lake. He insists that the lake is pretty good about awarding the sword to the rightful kings. And Percival finds the lake again and hurls the sword in, which is caught in the lake by the lady's sequined hand. The hand disappears into the water, and by the time Percival reaches Arthur again, a ship has set sail from the coast, and Arthur has set sail for the lands beyond. A.K.A. died. He's dead. Or Avalon. Avalon, yeah. And there oh, are th- in, in, uh, over on yeah, Catalina, Catalina yeah. Island? Yeah. Oh, that's nice. And there are three women... Uh, standing over him oh and that is my connection to disney with specifically disney's gargoyles okay where there are three women uh magical women who kind Bury of bury you yeah the they, afterlife well no they're they kind of like are driving part of the story forward because avalon plays a big part of it um late late in the first and second seasons uh and and arthur is there arthur's body uh, is asleep there on the back on, of their boat on the well, well no but that's the thing is like th- there's all these weird little connections the when these some of these characters meet these the three women for the first time they are standing on a ship right. out in the middle of the ocean 
and they know about Arthur that, you know, they, they brought him here. And I'm assuming that obviously the, the creators of Gargoyles were drawing. I'm assuming, yeah. On, from this film in, in, in specifically. I never watched Gargoyles. I had no idea it had anything. There was a, there was a guy named Arthur. No, no. It, okay, I'm so confused. It starts in medieval times, the show does. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, it starts in medieval times, and then as it goes on, um, there's in the involvement of the, I don't know what you would call them, I guess the, the Celtic gods, like yeah. like Oberon and Titania. Okay. Uh, and Avalon is involved, and Puck, okay. and all the, the Midsummer's Night Dream characters, you know? Okay. And But uh, the, these statues are moved from england to america Mm -hmm. and installed on a building in new york where the gargoyles come back to life after thousands of years of rest okay so and it so it relates back to like uh pagan times and and magic and Mm -hmm. rituals and stuff like that okay our writer director here was john borman he's the director of point blank zardoz exorcist to the heretic the emerald forest in the 1990 where the heart is which was written by his daughter he did deliverance too right Right, he did Deliverance. Yeah. I just didn't have that on the list. Uh, he kept the breastplate from Helen Mirren's armor and in his will apparently stipulates that it is to be returned to her when he dies. <laughs> uh, the book is by Thomas Mallory. <laughs> I was uh, going to say, he just likes to occasionally smell it. Yeah. <laughs> is he still alive? Smelling Mirren. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> the book was by Thomas Mallory. No, Thomas Mallory's been dead for s- centuries. Uh, his IMDb credits are mostly for arthur adaptations yes he is i when i read that i was i was sure i was 100 percent sure that borman had died and i was like i was like oh i'm gonna look up when he died so i can say the year that mm-hmm. her breastplate was returned to her and i was like it says oh he's still around i guess impressive yeah how old is he he's probably almost 90 born in 33 wow yeah pretty close 80 88 uh, the adaptation and writing were from Rospo Pallenberg, who wrote Borman's The Emerald Forest and is an uncredited writer on Exorcist to the Heretic. He also directed a fun little high school slasher called Cutting Class, which is one of Brad Pitt's first credited roles. Music here was from Trevor Jones. He later scored Dark Crystal, Labyrinth, Mississippi Burning, Arachnophobia, Free Jack, Last of the yeah. Mohicans, and The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Now, obviously, like, it says music by Trevor Jones, but right. most of the music is... Classical music. Classical music. Yeah. Cinematographer Alex Thompson, he was also DP for Year of the Dragon, Legend, Labyrinth. Uh, he was brought on to replace Altered States, Cutters Away, DP Jordan Cronenweth to finish Fincher's Alien 3, which but, we discussed in our C- Cutters Way review. But I like that he did like the three big iconic fantasy films. Yeah, yeah. Legend Calibre. and Labyrinth yeah. and this. Yeah, and, and, yeah I was like, oh yeah, great. <laughs> Uh, he also lensed Cliffhanger, Demolition Man, Executive Decision, and Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet. So there's a lot of action movies in there, but then he came back to Shakespearean at the end of it. And I feel like this and, and Legend have a lot of aesthetic similarities. Oh, definitely, um, yeah. And, I, and I'm sure that a lot of it has to do with filming in actual woods in, mm-hmm. you know, in, in England. Where, where Legend was almost entirely sound stages. Right. Was it really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. I, I mean, it's not even a big stage. It's because they they repurpose like every angle. But it has that it has that wet feeling. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like it does. everything feels like it's got moisture in the air. Like, yeah, that's amazing. Thompson also received an Academy Award nomination for his work on the film, but he didn't take it home, unfortunately. Editor John Merritt collaborated with Borman in the past, cutting Zardoz and Exorcist to the Heretic. 
Uh, our other editor, Don Camburn, uh, he was an editor for Easy Rider, The Hindenburg, and The Last Picture Show. Last year, he cut Willie and Phil and Smokey and the Bandit 2, and he's back for Cannonball Run and Paternity later this season. And later, he cuts Romancing the Stone, Harry and the Hendersons, Twins, and Ghostbusters 2, among others. Nigel Terry played King Arthur. He was John in The Lion of Winter, but most of his other credits are TV work or stage work that he's done. Yeah, the only thing that I, I remember seeing him in was like, God, it must have been early 2000s, the Ian Holm Emperor's New Clothes. Oh, okay. Uh, where he's about Napoleon. Yeah. And when Napoleon has like his kind of like little cabinet of people that he, of his advisors, I was like, it's freaking Arthur. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it was a good person for your cabinet. Helen Mirren played Morgana. She was Ophelia in the 76 Hamlet. We saw her last year in Caligula and the fiendish plot of Dr. Fu Manchu, two movies produced by pornographers Bob Guccione and Hugh Hefner. This is her first film not financed by pornographers, so that's cool. <laughs> that we know That of. we've covered. <laughs> uh, she'll be back in 2010, the year we make contact. She's the queen in The Prince of Egypt. She's Mrs. Tingle in Teaching Mrs. Tingle. She was the queen in The Queen, for which she won an Oscar, Her, I think her only acting Oscar. And she's also Queenie in the Fast and Furious series, where she plays the mother of the Jason Statham Shaw character. God, I forgot all about Teaching Mrs. Tingle. Yeah. Um, when Teaching Mrs. Tingle came out, didn't that cause a bunch of controversy? Because it, it happened to coincide with uh, Columbine or something like that? Uh, I mean, I'm sure that was some of it, but I mean... Uh, also just don't tell kids to murder teachers yeah <laughs> nicholas clay played lance a lot in 97 he played the sheriff of nottingham on television he played loxley in the highlander series and lord leo in the merlin miniseries so he got to be he's one of a couple people who was in the merlin miniseries yeah. and excalibur uh sherry lungy played guinevere she again has mostly tv work but she was victor's mother in mary shelley's frankenstein Paul Jeffrey played Percival. Nothing much I recognize, though he was a tailor in a recent episode of Better Call Saul. Hmm. Nickel Williamson was Merlin. Uh, he was Hamlet in the 69 Hamlet. He's Dr. Worley in Return to Oz. He's Father Morning in Exorcist 3 and Cagliostro in Spawn, who's a very Merlin-esque character in that movie. Uh, he, uh, he said, like, Return to Oz. He's also the he's Gnome the King. He's the Gnome King. Right, yeah, it's a double role, but... <laughs> but as most Wizard of Oz roles are. Yeah. Um, I, I can't remember. There's a, uh, I remember watching an interview, an old interview with Nicole Williamson where he just ends up, he just recites a whole poem Yeah. in the interview and the interviewer seems like really off guard by like, he's like, what, what's going on? And, but he just keeps going with this poem Yeah. and it's a really kind of, kind of awkward interview, but I think, I feel like Nicole Williamson was probably a pretty eccentric yeah. character. I've, I've heard that he was particularly difficult to work with um and that he had a habit of like he would walk off of a stage production if he was like interrupted and not come back for the rest of the night like mm. um and this is something that would happen repeatedly to the point that he ended up not getting cast in things eventually even though he's a phenomenal actor and uh he really makes some uh fun choices in this movie in particular yeah. like like that moment too when when he's like, oh, the dragon's out there. It's all around us. And he's like, yeah, and it makes sounds like, and then lightning strikes. He's like, oh, kind of like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like a complete change of tone from the way anyone speaks. Yeah. Um, In that um, documentary, they talked about some like siege weaponry falling on his head. Oh, right. Um, and it, yeah. and it, he was probably saved by that weird metal helmet he was wearing. Yeah, it literally hit him in the head and 
he walked off set and then someone's like are you okay and he's like tweet tweet and then he walked away <laughs> and like, okay i uh, hope nickel's all right, all right. <laughs> and that's how he invented twitter <laughs> yeah robert addy played mordred uh he also appears in the 98 merlin miniseries as sir gilbert gabriel byrne played uther pendragon he was jack deebs the animator at the center of ralph bakshi's cool world he's also in the brian singer usual suspects jarmusch's dead man stigmata end of days and ghost ship keith buckley was urians we had him last year as the postman in roman polanski's tess katrine borman played egraine she's of course the daughter of director borman she was a young eternal in a flashback scene from zardoz and she also appears as a duchess in sofia coppola's marie antoinette liam neeson was gawain he played keegan in crawl he was peter swan in the deadpool he's oscar schindler in schindler's list he's jerome lovell in nell michael collins in collins he's qui-gon jinn in those those movies <laughs> <laughs> he's Ra's al ghul in batman begins and daniel in love actually in the late aughts neeson made a permanent switch to fast-moving action films like the taken series the a-team and the gray the gray is a cool one yeah uh apparently he shows up in ted 2 somewhere yeah <laughs> scene is terrific yeah um liam neeson met helen mirren on the set of this film and the two of them lived together for four years afterward corin redgrave played cornwall uh, i didn't recognize many credits but his sister was vanessa redgrave who played guinevere in the 1967 Camelot, and his niece Natasha Redgrave would go on to marry co-star Liam Neeson. So connections all around. Mm -hmm. Patrick Stewart was Leon de Grants. He's Charles Xavier and Picard, but he's also supposedly great in the Green Room or Green Room, but I haven't caught that one yet. Uh, he also has a great cameo on Ricky Gervais's Extras. He was King Richard in Robin Hood Men in Tights, but he's also in Ted Two. Mm -hmm. But he's probably best known as Poop from the Emoji Movie. <laughs> right <laughs> clive <dare> swift <laughs> no you don't you disagree <laughs> clive swift played Hector. uh he was johnny porter in hitchcock's frenzy sierra and hines played king lot and eventually just lot because he submits to king arthur mm -hmm. uh he was president nemirov in the sum of all fears he's finn mcgovern in road to perdition fletcher in there will be blood he's a priest in in bruges or the priest the from the backstory that led the character here mm -hmm. uh he's also joe in miss pettigrew lives for yeah. a day which is a favorite <laughs> of jessica's he's also aberforth dumbledore in deathly hollows 2 the younger brother of the famous dumbledore and coincidentally the son of percival dumbledore that's their father's name mm -hmm. i don't think he speaks a single line in this movie no he doesn't but he's there i saw him a couple times standing in the background yeah. he was one of urian's men and then he joins the the knights of the round he might be best known as Mance Raider from Game of Thrones or as the voice of Steppenwolf in Zack Snyder's Justice League. Apparently, Snyder considers this his favorite film, and he credits it with inspiring Batman vs. Superman Dawn of Justice. He intentionally cast Sierra and Hines in the Justice League as the villain because of his association with this film. Mm. Huh. And in Dawn of Justice, Bruce Wayne's parents are attending a double feature of The Mark of Zorro and this film. But in The Joker, The Mark of Zorro was swapped out for a different 1981 release, Zorro the Gay Blade. Mm -hmm. Here's a difficult question. Do you guys remember another recent superhero movie that features a movie that we've covered on a theater marquee? A superhero Wait, movie so, that came out recently okay, that so has recent, a theater marquee in the movie. Okay, so recent now. Yeah. 
and it has a movie that we watched yep. for the show. Have I seen this movie? I don't know if you've seen it, actually, but okay. we mentioned it in the episode. Oh, I don't, I don't pay attention. Up the Academy is the movie, by the way. Do you remember what movie, recent movie featured Up the Academy on a theater marquee? trying to think of movies that took place in the 80s with superheroes in them it's only so many right wonder woman it's not I don't wonder know. woman but that's a good guess <laughs> it's the right decade um it has to do with the fact that the lead actor of up the academy became iron man an executive <laughs> at fox and it was an in-joke making fun of him so it's a fox superhero movie that takes place in the 80s it's just one of the x-men movies yes which ones take place in the past? Future past? <laughs> That's one of them. It's incorrect. What's another one? <laughs> There's two Age more in of that. Ultron. <laughs> no, that's, that's not a Fox movie. Deadpool. No. Name all the X-Men movies. I don't know the in names. The, in well, the, so there's X-Men First Class. There's Days of Future Past. And? Um, uh, and then there's the Phoenix, Stark Phoenix. What's between those two? <laughs> uh... Why can't I think of it? Yeah, I'm on the spot. That's what. This is why I'm bad at trivia. Is when I'm on the spot, I can't do it. I don't know the names of the X Men movies. I'll give you a clue. End of the world. Apocalypse. There you go. X Men Apocalypse. You could have said X Men Apocalypse. We're like, that's not an X Men movie. <laughs> I've never heard of it. Charlie <laughs> Borman played Boy Mordred. That's uh, that's Mordred when he's a little cherub kid jerk, mm-hmm. um, a little Joffrey. Uh, he's also the son of John Borman. Uh, he plays John Voight's son in Deliverance. In the movie Alien, there's a part where they built a small-scale stage and substituted children in spacesuits to make the room feel larger. One of the children in the scene was Ridley Scott's son, Luke, and according to Mythbuster Adam Savage, the other was Charlie Borman, hmm. although it doesn't appear on his IMDb as credited or uncredited. He's best known for a series of motorcycle rides that he did with good friend Ewan McGregor, that were documented as television series on the BBC. As of September of last year, all three, Long Way Round, Long Way Down, and Long Way Up, are all available on Apple TV Plus, if you have it. He suffered a nasty motorcycle accident in 2016 that broke both of his legs, and then he crashed a Vespa while recovering from that and broke his hip. Well, who rides a Vespa with two broken legs? I don't know. This guy. (laughs) His thumbs work. This guy. (laughs) Uh, he's up and walking around though, but he has a permanent limp on account of his legs having an inch difference in length after the accident. Barbara Byrne played young Morgana. I could not confirm a connection, but I'm assuming she is of some relation to Gabriel Byrne. Uh, Kay McLaren played the aged Morgana. Uh, just this credit. I didn't see anything else. Uh, Hilary Joyal played the Lady of the Lake, and this is her only credit on her IMDb page, but she's uncredited in the film, and elsewhere... I've seen it mentioned that this role was played by Telsch Borman, another daughter of the directors, but I could not confirm that. Mm. So I don't know if that's true. But there are some websites that say that Borman's other daughter played the Lady in the Lake, but IMDb says that it was this other woman, Hilary Joyal. Um, Those are all the credits I had for this one. I like this movie a lot. Um, One thing that bothers me is I wish that – even if it wasn't going to be wider, that he had had more wide photography of like, yeah. the people in it. Because so much of it is in close-up that it almost feels TV movie-ish mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, and also the sets are very small. I understand that they're, for some of it they're shooting interiors 
and specifically shooting like on the sound stages of the studio where they're making the film yeah but for the stuff that's on location get wider with it you know and and get more people in these crowd shots because i mean i get that it's expensive to wrap all these people in aluminum armor that's made to fit each person yeah but then maybe don't do that (laughs) maybe get plastic armor um and get a wider shot with way more people in it because this is a movie you're not you're not actually building an army um but i really like the story um even if it does feel like it would have been better served by two or three movies um with some room to breathe i wonder what that three-hour cut would look like Mm. but um it's beautiful I mean, the shots that they get are beautiful, and I love how everything glows and shimmers throughout the whole movie. Yeah. Well, and as I've said many, many times that I love the Merlin miniseries. Right, And I think that that's what this could have been if you had left it sort of longer and, you know, put it in several parts, um, because I think that one's like a three-parter. Yeah. Um, I, I agree with you in terms of how this looks, and I think that... It doesn't have the polish of a movie that if you had done this now nowadays, it would have a lot more polish to the way it was choreographed. And, and yet filmed. they probably spent hours polishing for each scene. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ironically. Yeah. But at the same time, there, I, I think that there's something I really like about the authenticity of how clunky it is yeah Mm -hmm. because it actually kind of feels more realistic to me as to what it might actually have been like yeah yeah i get that i feel like if this was done today you'd have a lot more big battle scenes i actually would love for someone to remake this not that like i'm itching to see a fully cg version of these landscapes and everything yeah but i i think this is a really fun story and it's such an old story that it's really overdue for a decent remake. And I think yeah. when Guy Ritchie did it, he did, you know, his Sherlock treatment of it where it's kind of, you know, fast paced and cutty and a lot of Dutch angles and all that stuff. And that's not what this story needs. It needs to be romanticized. It needs like long, you know, scenic moments and um, to dwell on the relationships between the characters, which this does well. Mm-hmm. I also thought that the actor playing Arthur um, was at the, from the start of the film i was like well, this guy's like a weird choice to center the movie around because he doesn't seem like a good actor but then like halfway through it i kind of fell in love with the way he was delivering every line yeah because he just puts this weird stink on things the way he says them. <laughs> i was just like well that's such a weird way to say it but i love the sound that his voice made yeah. he's got this weird trill in his voice and and when he starts lecturing people or shouting at the knights and it's just like this is cool. I would listen to this guy talk for a long time. <laughs> but again, I like Merlin, even though he's playing it completely different. Yeah. Mer- Merlin, Merna, Merlin is definitely out of place in this movie. And what I like is it, it's very different from like, I, I feel like if you were to ask someone to draw a picture of Merlin, they would probably draw pointy hat, big beard. Right, right, right. Like they, it would be like the time winters in MacGyver or the sword in the stone, Disney Merlin, not some guy with a, crazy chrome hat yeah he looks he looks more like the like the flash gordon villain yeah exactly yeah. like he, he's just totally dressed in a way that i don't expect the film merlin to be yeah um which which i adore and i yeah. adore i adore this movie i grew up 
this movie was a fixture of my household. Which I, I was thinking as I was watching it, how completely inappropriate it was, depending on how young you were when you were watching oh, it. <laughs> I was very young, but I was totally captivated. Well, uh, it's funny, too, because now that I think about it, because he is so much like Ming from Flash Gordon, and that's who he wanted to play the part initially. Yeah. <laughs> so it's funny that either way he ended up wearing a similar costume. Right. Uh, one of the things that's kind of odd about the movie is that it's really just a whole bunch of like short stories. Yeah. Because time progresses so quickly uh, for the majority of the film. It's, it's you know, there's the the pre, pre-Arthur story. Right. Then there's Squire Arthur pulling the stone, pulling the sword from the stone story. But like, I also kind of like looking for those junctions where mm-hmm. you're just like, every time there's a cut to a new scene, you're like, is this a decade later or is this later yeah. in the same day? Well, because <laughs> like, because then like two thirds of the way through the movie, it becomes the Percival movie, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's just him on a quest for ten years. Yeah, uh, and and that whole turn happens so suddenly where he's like. You, you think that they're going to keep it in the vein of the rest of the story and like, we need to get Excalibur back. But he comes in, he's like, what what are we going to do? And he's like, we need the grail. And it's like, the what? Like, <laughs> nobody has said shit about this. Yeah. Yeah. Why isn't the sword going to fix things? Because yeah. that's when I got sad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's I think it's an important transition, though, because the, you know, although he he said it in, in, in later years, you know, this is supposed to be happening, you know, closer to the sixth century. And so we're, we're it's like the, the dawn of Christianity and, you know, the loss of paganism. And so like, you know, this is his transition. It's like Merlin is not part of this anymore. We need to find, you know, the blood of Jesus Christ in order to move on. I mean, the, the problem, I mean, what, what put him in this funk, what put Arthur in this funk is that his best friend cheated with his wife Mm -hmm. and the two of them disappeared. Basically they left town and he's just bummed out yeah for decades somewhere in time yeah he's he's like wonder woman just like crying for decades about these people that left him and then the fix is like a cup of blood like i I felt like there could have been a better metaphor or like some other reason that this cup was going to fix him than just like i'm sad that i got cheated on a long time ago like you feel like by the end of 10 years he would have been over it by then and been like oh no it's cool you know you just gotta live every day well Well, but i think that that's what i'm saying is that that is part of what this is though is he's turning away from magic and it's not about getting the sword back and it's not about any of that it's about turning to christianity as his salvation yeah uh to your point Jesse Merlin has a speech with Morgana. It says the one God drives away the many gods right, yeah. and the trees have gone silent and it is a time for men uh, and their ways. Did the trees used to talk? I, I, was, I guess. Oh my God. <laughs> Let's do that again. <laughs> <laughs> the happening. Just our like... bark is worse than our bark. <laughs> <laughs> or you get the, the lunch pail trees and return to us. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I I totally agree with what you're saying. Is that that this is like a metaphor of because I feel the the Grail is as much part of the Arthur legend as the sword. Oh, for sure. But I just um, think like mention it up at the top, yeah. <laughs> like bring this thing up before the three quarters mark when we start looking for it again. Uh, when uh, Donovan is telling the story to Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade, Indiana Jones interrupts him and goes, "The Arthur legend." You know, he like refers to it as the the story of the where the grail went and what happened to it and yeah. how it got involved in stuff 
Um, have you either of you seen? Because I know you've seen, you both have seen the Merlin, Sam Neill Merlin. Uh, have you seen the Disney King Arthur, the one that with Mads Mikkelsen and uh, uh, the Disney one? Yeah. When did that come out? It came out in like two thousand one. Are you oh, talking about God. the one with Clive Owen? Yeah. That's two thousand. Yeah, two thousand four. Yeah, or like yeah, that. it's and it's got. I didn't Kira, know it was Disney. Kira Knightley. Well, it's it's Buena Vista, but I mean. But it's supposed to be it's supposed to be historically accurate in terms of the time period that it takes. Correct, because it's it's there. They are Roman. They are Roman soldiers. Right. Mm. Um, and when the Roman Empire was in retreat because they their infrastructure was falling apart, they they said, you know, pull back out of Britain and come back to the empire. And these guys, no, we've been here our whole lives. We're this is our land. We're staying here. And the Saxons were coming in from the you know the Scandinavia to take over. And basically the Roman soldiers and the Celts were like, Hey, we both don't like these guys. What if we, what if we unite the the Celtic and the Roman soldiers come together, mm-hmm. fight them guys off. And then this land will be all of ours. And that's the whole concept of this unification of England of, you know, the North and the South because Hadrian's wall, which was a, the wall the Romans built to separate the Celts to keep them from coming over like yeah. the great wall of China. Um, uh, I wonder if they made the Celts pay for it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, it's, it's a really interesting version of the Arthur story. Hmm. Um, it it, it kind of shoehorns all the stuff in though with Guinevere and Merlin is like a Celtic wise man. Uh, and uh, you know, it, it, it has some, so it has flaws. It has flaws. Yeah. But I think it's interesting that they chose to set it in the in that time period. Yeah. Because no, I don't think any other Arthur story would ever do that again. Mm-hmm. Not since. <laughs> Especially considering the box office of that particular example. Yeah. Yeah. But no, I, I agree because people, and, and maybe because of Excalibur, like connect it so much to medieval times and they when you think of King Arthur, you think of all these people fighting in plate mail and that's, you're not going to get that image out of your head. Well, even sword in the stone did it right way earlier than than this movie, but there wasn't plate mail in King Arthur's time. Like that wasn't how you Mm -hmm. you armored yourself. Um, But when you think of a knight and the knights of the round table, like you're going to think of the knights that he wrote about in the time at which he was. Oh, Mallory. Yeah. Mallory. Thomas Mallory. Yeah. So Mallory, when, when Mallory was writing it, that's when you had this kind of armor. Right, And yeah. so that's that's how... I mean, he was still a couple hundred years removed from, like, the Middle Ages. But, because I think that it's, it's like, 1200, 1300 or something well, like that. Well, Mall- Mallory was in the 1400s. Yeah, yeah. and uh, but I'm trying to think, like, the Middle Ages, I think, was, like, uh, it, between, like, 10th century and 13th century in that range somewhere. Um, although some people claim that there are years that are lost in there because people weren't keeping time properly. Have you heard uh, that theory? Oh, when they changed the calendar? No, not even when they changed the calendar, just that people weren't keeping track of the passing of time in the Dark Ages and that there's, like, time missing there. Mm. Hmm. I also did want to say that uh, I don't think Borman's daughter was the best choice for that character. I thought that her <laughs> acting was a little off. Um, I actually think that the the kid, the Mordred kid, is great. Yes. Because mm-hmm. he's he's creepy and he's, yes. like the perfect blend of like annoying and childlike that you want but um hers i felt was just a little bit off especially when you have her next to like these other characters like um 
the woman playing Guinevere and Helen Mirren and they're classically trained like stage yeah. actresses who've been on television and stuff. Her dancing was intense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The dancing seemed thoroughly improvised. <laughs> it was um it was more like interpretive dance. Right. Mm-hmm than seductive dance <laughs> which made it weird then that uther was like fuck everything i need that dancing <laughs> locked down that is what i have been waiting for yeah you know it's just his thing yeah. I, I think it was just more the you can't have my wife because you know you can have everything but you can't have her it's like wanna bet yeah it could have she could have literally been like a hunchback and he would have been like I need that. He said <laughs> I can't have it. Um, <laughs> but I also thought uh, that the the woman who played um, the woman who played, and, and I'll admit that what Lancelot said was was super hot when he was just like, uh, "Oh no, I'm in love with you, and I will always be in love with you for all of time, and all these other women can can screw off." Uh, but I think it was a little weird that. Uh, that Guinevere turned around and was completely infatuated with this guy because he's kind of strange looking and he's not super charismatic. Um, I, th- I honestly feel like Michael Beck makes more sense to me mm. um, if he can pull off any kind of an accent, which I don't know. Um, but uh, but it's interesting. But I just thought he was kind of a little a little odd for the guy who's supposed to be the dreamboat that everyone can't yeah. wait yeah, to yeah, like yeah. jump his bones. Although he does look good in the gleaming armor, I have to admit. But when the armor comes off, which is maybe a third of his role in the movie just yeah. completely naked yeah woods. running around naked <laughs> yeah um he's he just has a, a strange shape to him oh man i forgot to mention when uther you know uh takes a grain grain yeah uh he's wearing his full armor mm-hmm. the entire right, yeah. time like i mean that has to be the most uncomfortable sex anybody's ever had well that's that's the definition of protected sex (laughs) (laughs) it's going to chafe my willy (laughs) um i also like the line from uh fisher king where he says you know i mean women are great they make homes and they kill livestock so the knights can go out and get the grails slaughter villages with a clear head where would king arthur be without guinevere happily married probably well that's a bad example but trust me on this (laughs) (laughs) Uh, that's good stuff. What's a thumbs up? It's a thumbs up for me. Oh, it's a thumbs up for me for show. Where's this going, Letterboxd? Richard, I'll let you start. Okay, well, because it's going to be my number one. Is it really? Yeah. Um, I know it's not going to stay there because there's a lot of good movies coming out later this year. Yeah. But uh, for now, it is my number one. It is one of my all-time... It's one of those movies that I... I I forced upon people often. Yeah, you like, forced it on me a long time ago. Yeah, it's like, you see Excalibur? <laughs> I was just leaning back in front of a fireplace and Richard was wearing all this armor and <laughs> he just put this movie on against my will. <laughs> I was naked upon a rock with a deer. and <laughs> <laughs> We were, I think, at Blockbuster after it closed. <laughs> and he was like, well, you're locked in this building with me. Watch Excalibur. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, and like my next like movie that I forced upon comes out two years later is Crawl. <laughs> yes <laughs> that's the, that's the next one that people have to watch yep um all right jess what are you thinking um i i was playing around with putting it at the top of my list but um i think i'm gonna put it in third place right now it's third out of 38 for the year it is below thief and above omen three okay i have it in sixth um it's just under my bloody valentine which i liked more than you guys and just above the dogs of war 
which I also enjoyed, but did not have nearly as much story as this one, mm-hmm. uh, as evidenced by our, what, two-hour runtime so far <laughs> right now. Um, but yeah, I, I really enjoyed this one. And uh, But like Richard said, there's we have some pretty incredible stuff coming down the pipe in 1981, especially like right around the corner when we get into the like uh, May and June releases. There's some really uh, cool stuff. But I think that's everything for Excalibur. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Whereas I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord now. Join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. We got one! (laughs) (laughs) We have a new patron... On our Patreon account, we have Ian Graham is now a supporter of the show. Um, he's a good friend. Uh, we chat a lot on Twitter and on our Discord. And he has his own podcast called Cult Connections that you should check out. He basically finds a link between three different products. Sometimes they're movies or TV shows. And he discusses the, the connections between the three projects. And it's a really great show. So definitely recommend checking it out. But thank you so much, Ian, for your support. We appreciate it. And you're making the show possible. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing, <laughs> right right after I say we have a lot of great stuff coming down the pipe, we'll be discussing Going Ape, which IMDb describes like so. When 86-year-old Max Sabatini dies, he leaves his three prized orangutans in the care of his only son, Foster. A biological son named Foster. In order to inherit his father's $5 million fortune, Foster must take care of the apes for the next five years. We leave you now with a trailer for Going Ape. It's time for a film that straightforwardly confronts modern issues. Women's rights. Police brutality. Traffic congestion. Littering. And bad diets. Going Ape. Rated PG. Starts Friday at a theater near you. Check your newspaper for showtimes.